Any other scaredy cats in the room today? Just me, huh? Okay, all right. Well, on a rainy day in March of 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt stood up before a scared America at his inauguration, and he said these words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And those words have lasted down through the ages. Many of you know them, and they resonate with us. Why? Because fear is a frightening thing, isn't it? Uh, The New York Times reports that scientists working on the Human Genome Project have identified what they call the worry gene. I'm not making this up. It's gene SLC684 on chromosome 17Q12. And people who have the short version of that gene, they say, are particularly prone to fear, to worry. Many of you in here right now are worried that you have that gene, aren't you? Yes. (laughs) You see, fear is a frightening thing. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. There was once a man by the name of Jim Bernard, a true story. And one day at his workplace, Jim Bernard accidentally became locked inside of a railroad refrigeration car. And he was not equipped for the cold temperatures. He was only wearing his street clothes. And so when he found out that the door would not open and Jim realized his dire situation, he panicked, scratching and screaming for somebody to come rescue him. But nobody did. Nobody could hear him. And so he quickly went from frantic to exhausted. And Jim shriveled up in the corner of a railroad car. He was no dummy. He knew that you couldn't last long in frigid temperatures like that. And so Jim pulled a pen out of his pocket and he began to write on the walls of the railroad car, I'm becoming very cold. I don't have long to live. I can tell that death is close. I can feel it very near. These may well be my last words. And they were. Jim died there in that railroad car, and a few hours later, some workers opened up the refrigerator car, and they were shocked to find Jim's body on the inside. Why were they shocked? Well, you see, the refrigeration unit on that railroad car had not worked for quite some time. The temperature inside was 58 degrees. Jim didn't freeze to death. He didn't suffocate. Fear killed him. He was literally scared to death. Fear is a frightening thing. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And yet, to be honest with you, I've never really understood that phrase because what happens when we actually have something to fear that's greater than fear itself? What if I'm scared, not just because of the, I'm not just scared of being scared, I'm actually scared of something. Because when FDR stood up in 1933 and said those words to a frightened America, America was in the grip of the Great Depression. Millions of people out of work, displaced from their homes, didn't know how to feed their families. That's something to be scared of. When FDR said those words that very month, March of 1933, the Chancellor of Germany, a man by the name of Adolf Hitler, took supreme control and began his quest for world domination. That's something to be scared of. So what do you do when there really is something to be afraid of, more than just fear itself? What do you do when you're scared? Open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. I want to introduce you today to a guy named David. And David was well acquainted with scary situations. If you've not read the story of David in your Bibles, his story starts out in the book of 1 Samuel. It's incredible, a really fun book to read. This is all true, everything I'm gonna tell you today. 
Now, you see, when David was just a boy, it was his job to take care of his father's sheep. And so one day, David was, you know, just lollygagging around watching his father's sheep. And all of a sudden, out of the woods, a lion jumped out, snagged a little lamb from out of his flock, thinking he'd just got a free lunch, and the lion ran off. But the Bible tells us, David ran after the lion, grabbed it by the beard, and struck it and killed it. Wow. I don't know about you, but I cannot kill a man-eating lion. An adolescent David here is a lean, mean, lion-killing machine. And it didn't just happen then. You see, another time a bear came after his flock and he did the same thing. He killed the bear. David was no stranger to scary situations. And yet the Bible also tells us that it wasn't because David was so strong or mighty that he killed the lion and the bear. It was because God was so strong and mighty and God protected him. And throughout his life, we see this pattern in David that he encounters these scary situations and he chooses to trust God. There was another time when the enemies of God's people, the enemies of Israel, a group named the Philistines were gathered for war. So Israel is fighting against the Philistines. So we've got the Philistines, the bad guys on one hill and the Israelites, the good guys, God's guys on another hill. And there's this valley in between them. And every day, this massive giant hulk of a human being named Goliath, over nine feet tall, would come out and he would taunt the Israelites. He'd say, send your best warrior out here to fight me. If he kills me, we'll all be your slaves. But if I kill him, you'll all be our slaves. Or what, is your God too puny to protect you? So what did the Israelites do when they heard that? Well, nothing. They were scared. They were shaking in their boots. And this went on for 40 days. And one day, David comes to the camp of the army. David is only 17 years old. He's not old enough to fight, but he's bringing some lunch to his brothers there. He's basically just the glorified water boy. And David hears the taunts of Goliath, and this teenage, pimple-faced, adolescent shepherd boy is hacked off about it. And he says, if nobody else is going to fight Goliath, I guess I'll do it. That's a scary situation. But what does David do in scary situations? He chooses to trust God. And so David goes up against Goliath, not with sword or spear or bow and arrow or armor or shield or helmet, but with a shepherd's staff and a sling and five little rocks, the same thing he used to get the lion and the bear. Of course, when Goliath sees David coming at him, he's, he, just, he just laughs. He says, what do you think you're doing, you little punk? You're going to hit me with your stick? You chicken-livered Israelites and your stupid God. Is this the best that you've got? And David looks Goliath right in the eyes and scripture tells us that David says, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us us. Boom, mic drop. How much do you think Goliath likes that though? Yeah, not very much. So Goliath starts heading towards David, getting ready to attack him. David just pulls out his sling, puts one rock in, gives it a few twirls, lets it go. And we all know the song, thunk on the forehead, the giant came tumbling down. Goliath died right there. So David goes over and he takes out Goliath's own sword and he cuts off his head. The children's book skipped that part for some reason. I don't know why. But, uh, After this, after David kills Goliath, of course, David goes from zero to hero. I mean, he's the most popular guy in the whole country. Everywhere David goes, people are whispering, you know, well, Saul, King Saul, he's a good fighter, but David, well, we've never seen anyone like him before. And he's walking through the marketplace and the little girls are all laughing and giggling and blushing. And David has to sign autographs everywhere he goes. The paparazzi's following him. The top 40 charts are filled with songs about Dave the Giant Slayer, the most daring dude of all. But you can imagine what happened, can't you, when David got popular? 
the king of Israel, a guy named Saul, well, he got jealous. So jealous, in fact, he became obsessed with his jealousy and he wanted to kill David. And so David has to run away from the king and his army. That's, that's a scary situation. David's on the run with a small, loyal band of friends. They're hiding out in the wilderness for years. They're living in the desert, running for his life. And yet, in that scary situation, like the others, it's there in the desert that David learns how to trust God. And because David chooses to trust God in scary situation after scary situation, eventually one thing leads to another and David ascends to the throne. He becomes the king of Israel after Saul dies. And my goodness, what a king David was. I mean, he was the greatest king that anyone had ever seen. Uh, David, uh, he led Israel's army in battle after battle and they defeated the enemies of God's people far and wide. David expanded the territory of Israel from 6,000 miles when, square miles when he became king to 60,000 square miles. He was the economic and military power of his time. He was the mightiest monarch of his day. And through it all, one scary situation after another, David kept choosing to trust God. God blessed him for it. In fact, God even gave David a wonderful promise. He said, David... Even when you die, I will raise up one of your descendants, somebody from your family, to sit on the throne. And I will make his kingdom strong. Someone from your family will reign on the throne forever. Wow, what a promise. But unfortunately, that's not where the story ends. You see, David was a great guy. He, he was a man after God's own heart, scripture tells us, but he was still a man, an imperfect man, a sinful man. And at the height of his success, he got lazy and let his guard down, as us humans sometimes do. One day he was up on the roof of his palace when temptation struck. He looked down, he saw a beautiful woman there bathing. He wanted her, he got her, he had an affair with her. He murdered her husband, an innocent man, he covered it up. And we'll get more into that all next week. But because of David's sin, his family started to fall apart. One of David's sons died. And then another one of David's sons raped one of David's daughters. And then another one of David's sons was so mad about his sister being raped that he killed the son who had done the raping. So David's got a dead son, another dead son who was a rapist, a raped daughter, and a murderer's son. And this murderer's son, he's the one I want to focus on. His name is Absalom. Say Absalom. Yeah, you're going to want to remember his name. And, and, and Absalom has to run away from King David, obviously, after he murders David's other son. So... Absalom and David have this strange relationship. They aren't speaking. And David, over time, still refuses to reconcile with Absalom, refuses to see him. David was a great man, but he was an imperfect man, and he was a very flawed father. And partially because of that strained relationship, the refusal to reconcile, Absalom begins to plot against his father, King David. Absalom wants to take over the throne. And so what Absalom would do was, when somebody was going to talk to King David, we're going to go present an issue to the king, Absalom would get to him first, before they got to King David. And he'd say, no, just tell your problem to me. And he'd listen. He'd say, oh, yeah, you're right, that is, it. That is an issue. You, you have a good point there. It's too bad the king won't listen to you. You know, if I was king, I would take care of that. And he does this for four years. And little by little, the people start to be more loyal to Absalom than they are to King David. And eventually, Absalom musters enough support. He gets the loyalty of the people enough that they turn on King David. He leads rebellion, and David has to flee from his own son. Can you imagine the scene? David, once a mighty warrior, the greatest king that anyone had ever seen, scurrying around his palace, throwing some things in a bag. He's now a gray old man. 
hurrying to get out of Jerusalem before it's too late, running away from his own son. And so David and a few of his loyal followers, they, they flee Jerusalem before Absalom gets there. David's barefoot, he's weeping as he goes. He has to leave the throne room, he has to leave the palace, he has to leave the city that he made great. He has to leave the people that he gave his life to protect who now turned on him. That's a scary situation. And David, he, he's back in the wilderness now. He's back in the desert. He's running for his life. He's gone from hunter to hunted. It's like he's running away from Saul all over again. That's a scary situation. And what does David do in scary situations? You might remember. And so, so we come to the words of Psalm 3 here. And we come back to our original question. What do you do when you're scared? When there really is something to be afraid of? Well, David chose to trust God. David prayed. We're going to read the words of his prayer today. These are the words that David wrote as he fled from Absalom. Look at the first thing that he does. The first thing David does as he's praying is he, he looks at his trouble. Verses one and two. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, Psh, God will not deliver him. And that sure looked like it was true. I mean, the whole country, even David's own family had turned his back on him. Have you ever been there? When the people you trusted, the people who were supposed to love you and support you, turned their backs on you, stabbed you in the back, betrayed you, belittled you, ignored you, ridiculed you, when the ones who were supposed to love you the most are the ones who hurt you the most, have you been there? Have you ever faced a problem that you didn't know how to solve? Scary, isn't it? I've been there. So David looks at his trouble, but then he lifts his eyes. Verses three and four, he says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. So David's, he's scared here. He's feeling the fear, but he's also not giving up on his faith. David may no longer be on the throne, but he still knows someone who is. And you do too. So instead of looking at his problem, David lifts his eyes to God. And maybe you've been like David. Maybe you've been plagued by dark days and weeks and years of depression, just seems colorless and dull. Maybe your mind is so uh, full and cluttered with anxiety that you can't focus, you have no mental clarity. Maybe you're plagued by consistent fear. Maybe you're just scared and you don't even know why. If that's you, if you're in the desert, maybe like David, perhaps, perhaps the desert is where you learn how to trust. Uh, David, David looks at his trouble and then he lifts his eyes and then what does he do? He lays down. He goes to sleep. Oh, look at this. In verses five and six, David says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. How can David lie down in the midst of fear? Well, I'll tell you, there's a clue hidden in the structure of this psalm. At the beginning, he talks about how his enemies arise against him. And then we're gonna get there at the end where Lord, the Lord arises to protect him. So when the enemies arise and the Lord arises, what does David do? He doesn't need to do anything. He just trusts. He lays down. He doesn't have to arise. David finds stability in the midst of disorientation. He finds confidence in the midst of chaos. He finds inner peace in the midst of outer turmoil. Can you say that? Have you found the peace that passes understanding, the peace that comes through prayer? Because great fear is an opportunity for great faith. Great fear is an opportunity for great faith. Perhaps you know the feeling of great fear, sleepless nights, anxiety, worry, depression. You've been there. It's hard to rest when you're feeling that, isn't it? 
Our son Judah is eight months old now, and he, he sleeps pretty well most of the time, but the week of July 4th was a different story. Uh, I've never been in combat, all right, but our neighborhood sounded like a war zone that whole week with fireworks going off. It was crazy. And let me tell you, on the night of July 4th, there was no sleeping in heavenly peace in our house, all right? Judah woke up, and he was terrified because of the sound of the fireworks. He was just screaming, and it's hard to rest when you're scared, isn't it? It's hard to rest and to have peace when you don't know what's going on. When it's dark, you're afraid. You don't know how it's gonna end. You feel alone. And so Rebecca and I went in there and it was amazing because when we went in there, Judah slept. Even though the fireworks kept going off late into the night, Judah slept. He didn't know what was gonna happen. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't know when it was gonna end. But the comfort of our presence was enough. And I don't know what you're going through, and you don't know when it's going to end. But God's presence is enough to get you through. I can promise you that much. You know, I wish we had more time today to get into some of the practical nitty-gritty aspects of how we live this out, of how we deal with our fear of the different kinds of anxieties and worries that we, that we deal with. But we've actually started a new thing as a church that I'd like to encourage you to check out. On Wednesdays at noon, we're having what we call a weekday chat. And Steve and Tim and I are gonna get together on Facebook Live and we're just gonna process through uh, the previous week's sermon. So this week we're gonna be talking about fear and, and how we work through it and just practically speaking, how we live out God's truth in our life. And because it's Facebook Live, we'd love to get you guys' questions and respond to you directly and figure out how as a church family we can meet your needs and how we can live out God's truth together. So I'd encourage you to tune in uh, uh, to Facebook on Wednesday at noon and then if you can't tune in then go watch the video uh, later on in the week and we'd love to hear from you and interact and figure out how to live out God's word together in that way. Before I close today, um, I wanna look back through Psalm 3 at two things. I wanna look first at what we do when we're scared and then I wanna look at what God does when we're scared. First, what we do. I'll say it in a sentence. Let your fear lift your eyes. Let your fear lift your eyes. That's what David does by praying this prayer. You know, perhaps your problems look so big and God seems so small because you're looking at it all the wrong way. I have a nickel here with me this morning. I'm a minister, so this is my life savings right here. Emptied out my checking account to bring this nickel today. (laughs) And when I hold this nickel right up to my eye, it's kind of hard for me to see anything else. It consumes my vision. And when you stare at your problem, it consumes you. I don't know what your fear is today. Maybe your fear is a broken relationship. Maybe it's a marriage that feels more and more distant, a kid who's rebelling, the conflict that you face at work, the stress you face in your home life, the bills you don't know how to pay, the health diagnosis that doesn't seem to be going the way you want it to. I don't know what your fear is, but I do know that when you stare at your problem, it seems to be all you can see. It's hard to see anything else. But then when you take a step back, all of a sudden the problem assumes its proper size. Perhaps the reason your problem seems so big and your God seems so small is that it's just a matter of perspective. Maybe you need to stop looking at your fear and start looking at your father. Here, somebody can have a nickel. Merry Christmas. Don't say I never gave you anything. (laughs) It's a matter of perspective. Because when you stop looking at your fear, but you look at your father, all of a sudden you see this panorama of his goodness and his faithfulness throughout the ages and his word and his promises and his truth and his presence with you in the midst of your turmoil. When you let your fear lift your eyes, your eyes are lifted to the God who says, cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. 
Let your fear lift your eyes to the God who says, do not fear, for I am with you. I will strengthen you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let your fear lift your eyes to the God who says, I did not give you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Let your fear lift your eyes to the God who strengthens you so that you can say in the words of the psalmist, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Let your fear lift your eyes to the God that you belong to, the God who says that there is no fear in love, but that his perfect love casts out all of our fear. Let your fear lift your eyes to the God who says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace that passes understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let your fear lift your eyes to the Jesus who has saved you, the Jesus who you belong to, the Jesus who you follow, the Jesus who came across a man in grief who had just lost his daughter and he says to him, don't be afraid, just believe. The Jesus who walked on the water across the stormy seas in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the waves, and he comes to his disciples who are utterly terrified, being tossed to and fro, and he says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Let your fear lift your eyes to the Jesus that you follow, the Jesus who says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The Jesus who says, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. The Jesus who says, do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Believe in God. Believe Believe also in me. Let your fear lift your eyes to the Jesus who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't look at your fear. Look at your father. Great fear is an opportunity for great faith. That's what we do. Now look at what God does. The last two verses of this psalm. David looks at his father and he says, Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. So what does God do when you're scared? He delivers you. He delivers you. King David left his palace. He went down out of Jerusalem and into the valley below, weeping as he climbed the Mount of Olives, with only a few faithful followers beside him. And a thousand years after David, Jesus stepped down out of his palace in heaven, stepped down off the throne. He came to earth. He lived among us. And Jesus, too, went down out of the city of Jerusalem into the valley below, And he climbed the Mount of Olives with only a few faithful followers beside him and even they would soon abandon him. And there, Jesus wept. He was scared. He felt fear. And when he did, he prayed and he obeyed and he went to the cross and he died. We see in the last verse of Psalm 3 this marvelous truth proclaimed that from the Lord comes Deliverance. That word, therefore, deliverance, comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, meaning salvation. Do you recognize that word, Yeshua? That's the Hebrew name for Jesus. From the Lord comes deliverance, salvation in Jesus. And do you remember God's promise to David that somebody from his family would sit on the throne forever? That somebody is Jesus descendant of David and eternal king. So now, when you follow Jesus, what is there to fear? Fear itself? 
No, the most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid 365 times, one for every day. What is there to fear? Sin? No, sin has no power. What is there to fear? Death? No, death has no sting. What is there to fear? Hell? No, hell has no victory. Sin and death and hell have been beaten in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Praise God. Great fear is an opportunity for great faith in the God who delivers you. So pray your fears. Why? Because from the Lord comes deliverance. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not to you, not to your people's skills, not to your ability to hide your emotions or manage your fear or mask your weakness. Salvation does not belong to your paycheck, your reputation, your family, your life goals, your marriage, your job security, your personality, your to-do list, or your best efforts to be a better person. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So let the words of Jesus, son of David and king of kings ring true. John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. We do have trouble in this world, Lord. And we want to have great faith, but so often we do have great fear. And the worries and anxieties and troubles of this life seem to cloud our vision. So I pray that you would part those clouds and that you would give us a clear vision of you. When we see you in your glory and your beauty, that the only thing we would fear is you and that the fear of the Lord would drive out our fear of anything else because we know that ultimately our deliverance, our salvation, our rescue comes from you and that when we are safe in you, we've got nothing else that will even touch us. We don't have to be scared because of our hope in Jesus. Thank you. In your powerful name we pray, Jesus. Amen.